Welcome to the Mustang Owners Podcast. And now your host, Steve Hall. Welcome to another episode of the Mustang Owners Podcast. Today we're joined by, uh, well, this gentleman is actually a, a car guy's car guy. There's really not much in the car world he hasn't, I, I don't know how to say this, has seen, touched, feel, worked on, driven, and all, we're talking about all types of cars, not just Mustangs. And uh, I'm sure we'll get to a point where we'll focus on Mustangs a little bit. I'd like to uh, introduce Tom Cotter. Thanks, Steve. I was looking forward to this. Well, we are too. Actually, I have to be honest with you. I did a little homework. I've met, you know, we've met a couple of times in chat and got to know each other a little bit. But uh, your YouTube uh, videos, which are great, uh, really tells a lot about Tom Cotter. It really kind of shows, you know, just the the level of car interest and, as you mentioned earlier, a little, you know, quite all consuming. So um, I'm just kind of curious. If we just start a little bit before we. I do, of course, have some Mustang related uh, topics. But um, what got you started with the YouTube area? I mean, that's obviously been out for a while, but obviously you do quite a bit in that area. So I thought maybe you kind of give our listeners a little start of how that started. Well, the first book I wrote was the Holman and Moody story, and that was uh, 22 years ago. And then I was looking for another subject to write about, like, all right, maybe another famous race team or whatever. And I was talking to my publisher, and I had just driven back from California in my Cobra. I had purchased a 289 Cobra and one of the road and track editors uh, that everybody loves, Peter Egan, he rode with me and he wrote a great story about driving, you know, this, this two seater iconic, iconic car uh, from California to North Carolina. And it was in an issue of road and track. And that resulted in a phone call from a neighbor of mine who I'd never met, but he, uh, we share a property line. We we live in the country and you know we share a fence line, but you know, his house is a half mile away. And so he said, you know, my name is Hugh Barger and I'm your neighbor. And I love the story about driving a Cobra across the United States that was in road and track. I have a car in my garage that's related to the Cobra. You might want to see it. So wow. So I've been driving past this guy's barn. It's a farm, you know, it had five hundred acres. I've been driving past his barn for 20 years at that point. Like, wow, what, what do you have in there? You know, you can always imagine maybe it's something really cool. So I went over there that Saturday and he looked at my Cobra and admitted that he was a lifelong Cobra enthusiast and then brought me into his barn and he had an AC Greyhound. So I have an AC Cobra, which is an open two-seater V8. And he had an AC Greyhound, which is a closed uh, aluminum body car that resembles the Cobra somewhat, but it's a coupe and it's a four-seater. His father gave it to him when he went to graduate school, and he used it during graduate school. And then, because they made so few Greyhounds in the AC factory, he needed, a, I think, a wheel cylinder or a mass cylinder or something, and it was unobtainium. That was it. Couldn't get it. So he parked it in the barn, which is where it was 20 years ago, which is where it still is today. It's probably been in that barn since the, I guess, the early 70s, so probably 50 years. And so I had a phone call with my publisher that afternoon. And I said, Lee, you'll never guess what happened. I mean, you know, he, the guy liked my Cobra story and he had a car literally next door to my house in a barn. You know, it's a half mile away, but it's my neighbor next door. He had a car built at the same little factory in England that built my Cobra, but it's a, you know, the word barn find hadn't even been used at that point. And he said, Tom, that's, that's your next book. I said, what do you mean? He said, 
finding old cars, the Cobra in the barn. I said, I don't know. Do you think anybody wants to read about that? Well, since then, I've written 11 books on barn finds. Cobra in the barn, Hemi in the barn, Vincent in the barn, Hemi in the uh, Harley in the barn, 50 Shades of Rust, Barn Find Road Trip, Route 66 Barn Find Road Trip, Motor City Barn Find Road Trip. I mean, just on and on. And so I got a call from Haggerty because the, the books did, in fact, have an, an audience. And this this lady, Claire Walters from Haggerty, called me and said, Tom, we think that your book format would suit itself pretty well to, to be uh, on a YouTube program, a regular YouTube program. And I said, boy, I don't know. I've already talked to Discovery Channel and independent producers. And all these people that contacted me, they all had that same idea. But they wanted me to be somebody I wasn't. And in that, I mean, if you turn on Motor Trend, is people with attitudes and lots of tattoos and throwing wrenches, and they have to beep out their language because of you know foul language. And I said, Claire, I don't want to be anybody but me. And she said, that's all we want. We want you to be you. And so we decided to give it a shot with a pilot uh, program, and it, we stumbled through it and worked. And now here I am seven years later. And uh, you know, I've done, I don't know. I mean, I think I have approaching 2 million subscribers. And uh, some of my uh, uh, programs, the more popular ones where I find Cobras and Ferraris and stuff, have like 4 million views. And so that's how, the, how it began. It, it was almost by accident, and it worked out well. And so I, f- I find myself in yet another new career at, at this late stage of my life. Sometimes that's actually how it works out. You you know, obviously, right place, right time. But uh, the the image I had of uh, Tom Cotter with uh, tattoos, that just doesn't really resonate. So I can I can appreciate that thought. I mean, that's what you say out there. There is a lot of a lot of um, video out there, but it is about attitude and trying to bring something else to uh, another. Uh, I guess they I guess you want to say that's what some people think is cool, um, where car guys just want to see about the cars. Yeah, and I yeah, think the yeah. key is, and that's something that we always do here at the museum, is the car is the star. That's really what we're, you know, what people come here to see. And, and the same way, I'm sure you, I, I, it appears that you look at it the same way when you do your, your videos. You're here to talk about cars and people who own the cars. And the biggest thing, of course, is the stories. Like I said, I had a chance to uh, look at a couple of the videos that you've done, and uh, you, you get caught up in it because you want to hear the story. You would like to see the people, the cars, and a lot of interesting cars. In fact, you own quite a few interesting cars. And I thought before we get, again, before we get to Mustangs, just, if you don't mind, just tell us a little bit about some of your cars, if you don't mind. Well, I, I have owned and, and still own um, some some pretty significant cars, you know, and the, and the one is the Cobra we just talked about. I have a 289 Cobra, the 490th built, that I drove across the United States 20, 22 years ago. And uh, since then, it's been in, you know, it's probably I've been in 30 states because I do Cobra tours every year. It's been to Alaska. It's been broken into by a bear who wanted to get by the Fig Newtons that I forgot to take out of the car. Rip the roof off. Um, I have a so that's 490th Cobra built. I also have the 490th 66 GT350 built, which is a Hertz car. It's white with gold, and it's such a great car to drive. I mean, of all the cars I have, it's the nicest driving car. I'd rather take a long trip in that car. I would jump at that more than other cars. I have a, a 
Let's see, is that if my Ford inventory? I mean, I have my 39 Woody Wagon that I've had. I bought one in 1969 when I was 15. And that's kind of my co-star in the Barn Find Hunter program. Um, I'm really a Ford guy, but that doesn't stop me from owning, well, a Chevy. I actually race a 64 Corvette fuel-injected Roadster and vintage racing because it's affordable to race a Corvette. You can buy a Corvette with lots of cool racing history and maintain it easily for one-tenth the amount of money it would take to race a Cobra, to buy a racing Cobra. So, like, you know, Corvette runs doesn't run quite as fast as the Cobra, but it runs just fine for me. I have a, a, a Chrysler Hemi-powered car, and it's probably the most significant car I will ever own. It's it's a Cunningham C3, one of 25 Vignali body Cunninghams built, uh, built by a great guy named Briggs Cunningham in West Palm Beach, Florida, with Hemi engine, with four carburetors and a Cadillac transmission. And then that chassis was sent to Turin, Italy, and Vignali built a body out of aluminum. And uh, so that was a significant car built in 1952. And somehow the stars aligned, and I found one in a basement in Greenville, South Carolina. And, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm more proud of owning that car than any other car. I could always buy another Cobra or Shelby. I could never buy another Cunningham. And then I, I really dig British cars. I'm restoring a Lotus Elan right now, which has got a kind of a Ford-based engine, twin cam engine, but the, the bottom end is all Ford. I, I just sold my MGTD after 35 years of ownership. I have I raced my Morris Minor. It's sitting in a warehouse right now, which sounds uh, it sounds like an oxymoron racing a Morris Minor. It doesn't seem to make much sense, but it was a blast. I have a supercharged uh, Volkswagen Beetle with a Judson supercharger on it, so it's 36 horsepower engine is now pumped up to uh, 50 horsepower, which is about the same as some powerful John Deere lawn tractors. I have a uh, recently sold, I mean, it killed me to sell it, but I had to, uh, a 67 Ford Country Squire, kind of a ratty, patina, rusty finish, but it had a the only one ever built with a 428 fuel, uh, 428 cubic inch engine with a four-speed transmission. Now think about that, a Country Squire with a four-speed manual gearbox, bucket seats, and a console. And so that was a ton of fun to own. And let's see what else do I have in the garage. I have a 53 Ford two-door station wagon I bought in high school for 85 bucks, and I still have that. Uh, and I'm sure that, you know, my daily driver is an F-150. That's about at the moment. So, I, you know, I, I've had up to 40 cars at one time. At one time, I had 14 Woodies alone. But then I, you know, I <laughs> I went to therapy and decided I didn't need 14 Woodies. And so I'm trying to thin down my cars because I can, I, I'm telling everybody listening to this podcast right now, owning a lot of cars seems like fun for from a distance, but when you own a lot of cars, it's not fun. It, if you want to take, you know, that car in the corner over there, I want to take it out and drive on a Saturday morning. Well, you've got to move the other two cars in front of it. And, that, and they have flat tires, and their gas has gone bad, and the battery's dead, and you wind up spending a half a day moving the cars that you didn't want to drive just so you can get to the car that you want to drive. There's insurance issues. You know, it's like, it just, it, it's just, it, it sounds like fun, but it's not fun. Unless you're like Jay Leno and have a team of mechanics that can keep them all operating, and he takes a different car home every night, keeps them all lubricated and running. But uh, so that, that at the moment, I probably said, you know, use too many words to tell you what I have, but that's what I have at the moment. 
obviously it's also um, being that uh, a lot of what you do is barn find and searching and looking for cars. And it must be difficult as you find some of these cars and you spend some time with the owner and maybe hear the story. There may be an opportunity where you're looking at this car and you're saying, you know, boy, I sure maybe I'd like to have that car. And I guess what I'm trying to say is like it's almost like you're in a, in a you're ground zero by going and looking for these kind of cars to show on the on YouTube. But at the same time, as a collector or as a car guy, you kind of you kind of put yourself in harm's way to say, wow, I I won't, I know I want that car. You know, you become a, a person. I can see myself become very infatuated with a car very easily. And then the next thing you know, like you said, you could have 30, 40 cars, and you're going. Well, what do I do with them now? Uh, my wife has one rule. I'm allowed to have any one Mustang I want. The op mm -hmm. the key word there is one. That's it. <laughs> so yep, yep, uh, yep, yep. that's who controls my uh, my uh, appetite for cars and such. Well, let's talk a little bit about some Mustangs, if you, if you don't mind. Uh, obviously, I'm sure through your searches and, and tours and things, you've probably run across some Mustangs. And so I'm hoping you might just share a couple of different Mustangs that you've come across that, uh, you know, these are the kind of stories I'm sure our listeners are looking forward to hearing a little bit more about. So uh, hopefully you can just share a few with us. Well, I want to go way, way, way back to, I was 10 years old. It was 1964 and I was in uh, fourth grade and, you know, there was all this hoopla and I, you know, I kind of was conscious of it, this hoopla at Ford dealerships about this car and they had paper on the windows, of Ford dealerships all over the country. So there was this new car coming out, but it was top secret and what I, you know, and, and, you know, I'm a lifelong PR guy. That's my, my career was in the PR business and to build hype like that over a consumer product is like every, every PR person dreams of the opportunity to do that. Well, under Lee Iacocca, Ford was able to do that. So when the Mustang was introduced two teachers in my school on the same day received their new Mustang, well, not two teachers, the janitor. And a sixth grade teacher. The janitor got a uh, a green coupe, four speed, hypo 289 Mustang, 64 and a half. And a sixth grade teacher got a black Mustang convertible, white top. Uh, I don't remember the color of the interior, automatic 289. And it was such a big deal at my school. Now I'm in fourth grade. Like, you know, you, you know I'm, I'm starting to learn, like, you know, times tables and stuff and they allowed teachers to bring their classes the students out to the parking lot so we could look at these new mustangs up close and you know to this day i remember i was so excited because i'm a car kid i loved cars and here the teacher was allowing the classes to go out and look at these cars like when did that ever happen and and i wonder how that how that could happen today you know what what kind of car would have to be put in the parking lot for teachers uh, the principal to allow teachers to bring their classes out there. I, I can't think of it. So that was a, an amazing moment for me. Soon thereafter, uh, we went, my father took us, I grew up on Long Island. He took my brother and I to the New York World's Fair. And uh, there was this Ford Pavilion and you got to sit in a Ford convertible. And I, so I got to see another Mustang convertible. And I wanted to get in that convertible to ride through on this fantasy ride through the, like the future. But sadly, the Mustang was one car ahead of, and, other people got in there, so we had we got into a Galaxy convertible, which was fine. But I got to you know be up close to a Mustang again. My uncle Bob, who lived in Boston, uh, had a, uh, a Mustang coupe. It was probably a '65, and he never garaged it, so it was always dull paint, was red. 
I think Rangoon Red. And uh, yeah, he'd come down to visit us once in a while, and he went off to church on a Sunday morning, and I decided I was going to wax his car. So I compounded it, waxed it, and it's so amazing. I remember to this day, he got home from church. He borrowed my mother's Volkswagen, and he says, Tommy, it looks like a million bucks. And so I got, you know, I got to spend, you know, hand, hands-on time with a Mustang. And then, you know, to me, it's it's always been this car that came out at a, during a happy time. I know the Vietnam War was raging, but America was a different place, and uh, there wasn't so much animosity towards neighbors. And the, when I see a Mustang, I think of happy days, not the show, but a happy time. And I, I look at my GT350, white with gold stripes, and I. It just makes me feel well. It makes me feel like I'm, you know, ten or twelve years old again. But it it just has such a look. If I look at it from the three quarter rear end shot, fastback, those nice little taillights, the gold stripes coming down. It just wow. They got it right. They got it so right that you know here we are uh, coming up on sixty years later after the car was introduced, and it just looks so right. So I've owned a couple of Mustangs in my life. I, I owned a 69 convertible, which was really oddly optioned. I, I got it for 400 bucks. It was a 69 convertible, burgundy, black top, like a burgundy interior, three-speed manual, 351 Windsor, I think, with a you know roll-up windows and factory air conditioning. Like What an odd combination of three-speed manual, factory air. Just odd. But yeah, you know, I bought that owned it for a little while, but I could never afford the car. When I was a kid, I couldn't afford to keep cars. I had to move them on and try to make a little profit and, and keep moving. Most things I've found, you know, on Barn Find Hunter, you know, you say about the stories, I I would rather find one car, even a boring car. It could be a, you know, a Chevy Nova or a Ford Fairlane. I'd rather find one car with a good story than a field worth 1,500 cars, you know, because fields of cars or junkyards don't have stories they have inventory but a person who owns a car has a story and that's what i strive to kind of dig out on barn find hunters dig that story out and and have the owner tell me that well i i got that in high school my my aunt gave it to me when i graduated i drove to college and, you know i got married and I, I you know i went to I went to the hospital in this car. Got my had my baby delivered. I mean, that's the kind of that's that's something we can all relate to. Uh, that that's what I pursue on on my program. And I've found a lot of Mustangs on the program, but I've found a lot of other cars. People will write, you know, comments to the to my YouTube program and and ah, why don't you find more GTXs? I'm in, I like 440 GTXs. Why don't you find more Yanko Camaros? You know, let's get real. I can't decide what I'm going to find when I. When I open a barn door, garage door, it is what it is. I'm lucky that there's a car in there. You know, I raise the door and it it could be a rusty Falcon, but there's a car in there. I can't decide what kind of car I'm going to find. And and if you if your listeners think that you can do that, it's it's incorrect. You know, it's sad that American Pickers is not as authentic a show as you believe it is. You watch it and you think that they're going to Oh my god. Look at this car. It's amazing. But they knew that car was in there two months before they ever got there. They had people, you know, search crews go out there, and if they're going to buy it, they negotiate the price ahead of time. And then Joe and Frank, you know, Frank and uh, whatever his name, Mike, show up, and they, oh, look at this. Wow, aren't we lucky? Nah, they're not lucky. So I try to keep it authentic. 
And when I open the barn door, the garage door, walk in the backyard, whatever it is, the car, it is what it is. And the, the brand of car doesn't matter. The story does. And that's one of the things I think is really unique about barn finds is that, like you said, when you go to a barn and you open the door, it's almost like a Christmas present, so to speak. You're going to unwrap, by opening the door, you're unwrapping that gift, as it were, and you don't know what you're going to find. Uh, it could be anything in there. It could be something, you know, as, as uh, you know, it could be, you know, some kind of a, you know, a Shelby or a Mustang or a Camaro at the same time, or it could be like Al Capone's uh, safe, empty, nothing there kind of a thing. And so it is definitely just kind of, a, you know, it's just one of those things. And it's unfortunate, though, that so many people do watch reality shows and they think, wow, you know, I just got to go find some barns and I'll find all these good stuff. It doesn't really work that way, as you said. It's really, it's, you know, it's 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 rare to find a car in a barn. It's not as simple mm -hmm. as it is because a lot of people who have barns know they have a car in there, and they may have already decided to, you know, restore it, sell it, do something with it. So it's hard to, you know, find something these days. Extremely hard, and much less to find something that uh, that's a car-wise that you can then, of course, create a show and really kind of spend some time with and get the story from the owner. So. It's not as simple. There, that it's, I'm sure you have, a, as they say, uh, my dad and I used to fish a lot. And he said, he said you're going to have more days when you don't catch fish than you do catch fish. And that's just how it is sometimes. You know, you sometimes you, you're able to find it, and sometimes you're not. So, well, I'm hoping, again, I'm going to kind of go pin you down a little bit, maybe more to Mustang. Has there, was there any one Mustang that you found in a, you know, in a barn or in, on your tours that really just kind of stood out to you because of the story with the owner that you could share? Well, yeah, this is one that has not been broadcast and may not be broadcast. I'm not sure, but I was doing research for a book on racing Porsches. And, and once I got into the book, I decided it was too statistical and okay, this is not the book for me. So after spending, you know, several months working on a book, I decided to shelve it, but there was a name that kept on cropping up when I read, read through race results from Sebring and uh, Bridgehampton racetracks, there was a name that kept popping up. And, and it was curious to me because, you know, this, this, this name, two, it was two brothers. It turned out to be two brothers. And they raced a car called an HRG, and they raced a car called, uh, well, a Porsche. And I, I'd, I'd see them, their name pop up here and there and here and there. And they were very active racers in the early to mid-50s. And they came from a town just a couple of miles from where I grew up on Long Island. I said, son of a gun. And so I'd see it more and more and more. So I called a friend of mine in that town who owns a furniture store. I said, Bill, have you ever heard of this name? He said, no, but I'll do some research. So anyway, he did some research, found out that the son of one guy and, and the nephew of the other guy lived in the town still. And he was a car guy and he, and he couldn't wait to talk to me. So here's the ultimate fantasy is that you do research, find a family like this, and the it's son of a gun there, the, the father's 550 Porsche Spider is still in the garage, you know, this many years later. And so I was like, wow, I wonder. So I get the son on the phone, I talk to him. I said, you know, by chance, you know, might your father's or uncle's Porsche still be in the family, like in your garage? He said, no, nah, sadly, they sold those cars in the 50s. But, and I love the but, he said, I'm a car guy, and I've raced, and I've still got a bunch of old cars. I said, really? He says, yeah, I got 
a 911 sitting in the building. I hadn't used it in 40 years. And I've got a, a 914-6 that I haven't used in years. And I've got my Shelby Mustang. And I, what? You have a Shelby? Yep. Tell me about it. So he said, well, I bought a, a, a GT350, uh, 66. And I converted it to a race car. And I raced it for years. You know, I raced it at Bridgehampton and Lime Rock and Summit Point and Briar, New Hampshire, and on and on. And I said, and you still have this car? He said, yeah, I do. And so he started to tell me about it. And it hadn't been out of the garage since, uh, I don't know, probably the late 80s. And I have yet to make a trip back there to to meet him in person. But I spent a long time on the phone with him when he, we, we enjoyed each other's company. What I'm What I'm getting around to is, you know, this is a Mustang-centric program, and I understand that. But by looking for a Porsche that might still exist in a family's garage, I found a Shelby Mustang. So I think it's an important lesson for your listeners to take away is that, you know, you may be hunting for one kind of car and stumble across another. I was hunting for, you know, a, a, a possibly a rare Porsche racing car because I had read about it in race results and stumbled into a GT350 Shelby with racing history that's still sitting in a guy's garage. It's been there since the 80s, not out of the garage. And so, you know, they're still out there. And I just want to say that at Amelia Island, just two weeks ago, I introduced a new book, and it should be on Amazon right now, called Secrets of the Barn Find Hunter. And I wrote it, and Mikhail Haggerty wrote the introduction to it, about him finding his first Porsche when he was 14 years old or whatever. And in that book, I explain how I started to hunt for cars as a 12-year-old on Long Island. I mean, like, that's I grew up on Long Island, and I would look for cars out the school window on the way home from school and then go back on the weekend with my bicycle and uh, talk to the owner. I mean, I was 12. I didn't have any money, but I, I, I started to hunt for cars that early. My first car was a 1944 convertible that I bought for 25 bucks because Lumpy on Leave it to Beaver had one on the TV program, and I just dug that car. It was so cool. So what I'm saying is there are plenty of cars out there, and the secret is tell everybody you know that you're a car guy, first of all, and let everybody know you like to find old cars, which will either end your conversation immediately or it will – people will say, what do you mean you like to find cars? And you tell them, like, you know, there are cars sitting in people's garage and people's backyard. And I I totally believe that everybody knows somebody who has an old car somewhere. And it might even be them. It might be their father or their next-door neighbor. But um, there are – I think everybody could be a lead for your next discovery. And you know what? If it's not a Ford or it's not a Mustang, that's okay. Uh, go there. Pay respect. Nod your head. Be nice. And maybe that person knows of somebody with a Mustang in the garage, if that's, if that's the car you desire. It, it definitely sounds like networking a bit and never closing the door to an opportunity to look at a barn find or a, a car opportunity like that. Like you said, you just don't know. You never know where it's going to lead because those will also sometimes make the best stories, how oh, yeah. that came about, how I did. I, like you said a minute ago, you're you know, looking for a Porsche. Next thing you know, you're talking to the guy. He's got a GT350. You just never know what uh, what you're going to find. And it's yeah. just and that's the cool part. That's actually yep. like, man, that is just too cool, and such and so. And you know what? The most valuable thing you'll find is a friend. Yes. I I contend that car guys, car people, guys and girls, 
are all friends. Some of us just haven't met yet. And, you know, the best thing that can come out of, you know, meeting somebody new that shares your passion for cars is that you've got a new friend that you can meet, you know, for coffee now and then and share stories and, you know, share leads on discoveries, things like that. So it's, it's, it's a cool world. And it's not only about the discovery. It's about the hunt. Absolutely. No, um, I, before we moved up to uh, the Concord area, I used to live in a little community in North, North Georgia. And one day my wife and I were driving down back to, back to home and in a gas station, I see a, a GT 350 early, early model. And I go, well, I don't know of that car. I don't know of any early GT 350s in this town. So I pull over and I go in the gas, go to the gas station. And of course, you know, I got to talk to the guy and uh, we're talking about 10 minutes, 15 minutes while he's filling up the tank. And he's, he's this there and he says, no, no. He says, I, I, I did, it's, it's a tribute car. I built this. He said, but he says, this little town has some really cool cars. And I said, oh, yeah. And he says, yeah. He says, he says, there's mine. There's another guy in town that's got a, a Boss 302, a newer, uh, this was back in 2010, 2013 uh, model. And he says, then also, um, We've got, um, there's a Shelby. There's a GT500 in this town, too. He says, for our little town, you know, we've got some pretty cool cars. Well, what I didn't tell him, because my wife was honking the horn because <laughs> she wanted to get going, was that the, the Shelby was mine. And the GT, I mean, excuse me, the Boss 302 was my neighbor's. <laughs> and so I'm sitting here, in our little subdivision, we had two really kind of cool cars. In fact, he used to work for the Ford Truck Division. He retired. And as his, yeah, as his retirement gift, he did buy himself a Boss 302. Uh, so that was kind of cool. But uh, so I, I go back to the car. My wife says, how do you, how, how can you just pull over and talk to a guy like this? And I said, all you have to do is say, <laughs> it, it's really simple, sweetie. You walk up and you say, cool car. And the guy is going to talk to you. I mean, yep. that's why you know you're talking to a car guy. If a guy doesn't want to talk to you and you say that, turn around and walk away because he's just not the right guy to talk to, so to speak. You know, he just doesn't. He doesn't maybe necessarily get it. Uh, he may yep. need more about. He has a cool car and you're not kind of attitude. So, I I agree with you, and that's why we we love at the museum. We get a lot of folks here, and we make a lot of friends. We really do, and we appreciate them and their cars and how they continue the heritage of Mustangs, in our, in our case, of course. So I know you just you mentioned you just did a book. What are you guys work, What are you working on next? Well, I've transitioned from books about barn finds, the Cobra and the Barn, whatever, which I love, but I've done you know a number of those to road trips, and sometimes those road trip books are barn find related, and sometimes they're not. And so the, the most recent road trip book I did, it's called Ford Model T Coast to Coast, a slow drive across a fast country. And I drove a 100-year-old car uh, from New York City to San Francisco on the Lincoln Highway, which was is a 100-plus-year-old road, the first cross-country road in America. And I just, I love the trip. It took two weeks driving a Model T at 35 miles an hour, had, did not have one mechanical failure. It was just an amazing trip. So, okay, what, how do I top that? Driving a Model T from coast to coast. So I'm about to embark in the next uh, few weeks. Ford Motor Company is loaning me a Bronco, a new one of the new Broncos. Airstream Trailers is, is loaning me a, a, a very small travel trailer. Haggerty's involved. Griot's Garage is involved as, as sponsors. And some clothing companies and I have a charitable component as well, which is our animal rescue league. And I'm going to drive this rig with my photographer, 
Michael Allen Ross. We're going to drive it from Key West, Florida, which is mile zero on uh, US-1, to the Arctic Circle in Alaska, which is the end of the road. So we're going from mile zero to the end of the road. It's about a, just under 7,000-mile trip. And cutting right across, diagonally across America, staying off the interstate highways, meeting people who live kind of off the beaten path, not near interstates, not near Walmarts, not near Petco's, and and just kind of trying to meet the people and see the things that are these days so often bypassed. And uh, I'm I'm excited as heck. It's going to be four weeks from Florida to Seattle. Then I'll take four weeks off, and then four weeks from Seattle to Dead Horse, Alaska, which is literally the end of the road in the, in the, uh, the uh, Arctic Ocean. So that's what's next in my life, and uh, <laughs> I can't wait to hit the road. Wow, that that sounds so ambitious. That might be the the end all trip of all road trips. I mean, how do you how do you top that? It's it's the longest trip an American can make, point to point. You go through Canada through the Yukon Territory and go through British Columbia until you get back to Alaska. But, uh, yeah, you can't. That's it. It's the end of the road. Yeah, well, I'm sure, of course, you're going to have to make sure you do it during when the, when the weather is at its best because, uh, obviously, the further north you go, the little bit uh, more dicey uh, your your travels can be. So, uh, wow. And, I, and I'm sure you're going to be able people will people be able to keep up with your travels? Uh, are you doing things to – you know, how are you kind of keeping folks in, in, involved or engaged so they know how how your trip is going? Well, we're putting it all together now, but Haggerty is going to be uh, take the lead on um, media. So uh, we'll we'll do video and we'll do Facebook and Instagram regular feed. So people, I, I want to get people engaged in it before we leave, during our trip, and then following the trip, keep people kind of energized on it because the book will take about a year to get in people's hands. So the book would come out sometime in 2023. And I, I just want to, you know, keep, keep people kind of engaged in that whole thought process. There's anything we can do as you get information or things you can share. We'll be happy to post it on our website, post it on our email blast and social media. Cause uh, this sounds like something that uh, I think a lot of people would like to just kind of, you know, keep their eye on as it were, because this is something that's just a, this is beyond a bucket list. This is just like incredible. So uh, hopefully you'll, you'll keep us involved. Well, I'm 68 years old, but I'm a 14 year old at heart. And so, you know, this is the kind of thing that would have excited me as a 14 year old. And it excites me still today. That means you haven't lost the passion, obviously. So that's great. I appreciate the time, Tom. I know we, we try to, we, 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 this goes by so fast and I'm sure we can talk so much more about other things. So I really, but again, I do really appreciate uh, you spending some time with us and uh, sharing your stories and, and please let us know how things are going. Cause we'd like to let people know, you know, especially on your upcoming trip and other things like with books or whatever, let us know. Cause we, uh, we're here just to try to help spread the word to other car enthusiasts and car guys. And so uh, I want to thank you for being on, on our podcast today. Thanks, Steve. I look forward to seeing you again. We hope you've enjoyed listening to another episode of the Mustang Owners Podcast. Be sure to subscribe to the podcast so you won't miss any episodes. For more information on the museum, please go to mustangownersmuseum.com and you'll find additional information on upcoming events.